Hey, hey, I'm really glad you're here today. Thanks for being here. Um, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. How many of you ate or ate too much on Thursday or Friday? All right, there were hands that didn't go up. So next week we're going to start a brand new series on lying. And <laughs> now I hope that you had a great Thanksgiving that you were able to spend with time with family and friends. And and uh, it was just a great weekend all around for you. Hey, today we're going to do something, a little audience participation. I, I'm going to need your help with this as we get started, because I want to play a little game. We're going to play the opposite game, all right? So I'm gonna, here's how this is going to work. I'm going to show an image or say a word, and you're going to tell me, when I ask for it, you're going to tell me what the opposite of that is, okay? It's it'll be really simple, really easy. I, I didn't pick hard things, so I think you'll be able to catch on really quickly. Um, so let's just go look at the first one. This first one. All right, heaven, right? So, what would be the opposite of heaven? Hell, yeah, right, hell. All right, let's try, so you all got the hang of this. I think you kind of understand the, the concept. So let's do the next one. Next one's a word, winner. All right, what's the opposite? Lovely, I knew that was going to happen. It's not, you're, you're, you're one ahead of me, all right? You're one ahead of me. It's coming next. You stole my joke. I don't have a lot of good jokes, and so I had one ready, and he just took it from me. Yeah, no, loser, right? If, if winner is opposite now. I was going to Tommy's getting a little ahead of me up there, too. I'm all, I was going to say participation trophy was the opposite of winner, but, you know. But speaking of participation trophies, um, Louisville. So what would the opposite of Louisville be? Winner. Um, that's where you should have said that. Yeah, thanks. So Tommy's, uh, Tommy's having way too much fun up there. Yeah, Kentucky, and so I was really nice with this too, because I was, y'all know I'm not a Kentucky fan, it hurts me to, to say good things about UK, and so I was trying to find a graphic or a logo or something that had the cat like on his back with his paws in the air, and I couldn't find it, all actually I could find was a cat with a bird in its mouth, that was the only <laughs> images I could find, and I wasn't about to use that one, so, alright, a couple more, real quick, uh, last, uh, next one, uh, the opposite of... What's the next one? I think it's Democrat. What's the opposite of Democrat? Republican. Yep. Yeah. All right. Last one. Thankful. Yeah, so this is where it gets complicated, isn't it? Because I think the opposite of thankful is grumbling and complaining and whining. Thankful is, is very active. If you're, if you're a thankful person, you're, you're responding. And the opposite of that, I think, is, is knowing that there is around you all of these good blessings. That, and, and instead of being thankful for them, you complain about them and you whine and you grumble. And that's what we're going to talk about today for a couple of minutes. And there's a couple of reasons why I think we should talk about Thanksgiving and grumbling. And the opposite of Thanksgiving. And, and, it, and there's a couple of reasons, but number one is this. It's one of the most acceptable sins in the church. Complaining or grumbling, whining, is, is, it's become a national pastime of ours, especially when you think about everything that, that our country's been blessed with. I mean, it, let's just be realistic. If you live in the United States of America, you are in the top you know, 3%, maybe more. I don't know what the actual statistics are. They're all made up anyway. But um, you, you are one of the wealthiest people in the world. Even if, you, if by American standards you don't have very much, because you live in America, you're one of the wealthiest people in the world. And so it has just become this national pastime for our country to grumble and complain and whine about anything. And that sort of percolated 
into the soul of the church. Many people in churches and many churches feel like it's not only their right, but it's their responsibility to complain about anything that they don't like. We say things like, hey, well, we don't like the music. Or I didn't like that particular song. Or I didn't like the key that it was played in. I didn't like the message that the preachers talked. I, didn't, I don't like the style of the preacher. He, he doesn't use enough notes or he uses too many notes. Or, or he, he dresses uh, too sloppy or he, doesn't, or he dresses too well. I, all of those things are things that have been said. We say things like, you know, I don't like the format of the bulletin. There's not enough stuff in there for me. Or, or I don't like the color of the carpet. Or someone forgot to make an announcement for me. They must, have forgotten, they must have forgot to do that or they did that on purpose, right? It's never they forgot to do it. It's they always did it on purpose. Those are all complaints that I have heard, unfortunately, made by people in this group. But there's complaints like that everywhere. We, we pick things apart and it's become so much a part of our culture that we have to be careful that it doesn't become a part of our church. Because there's a, there's a poison to, the, to complaining to a negative spirit. And, and that's not just true in the church. That's true everywhere. That's true in your home. That's true in your relationships. That's true in church. It's true in your workplace. If you've ever been somewhere where there's just this negative, critical spirit, it, it's poisonous. And it's damaging and it's contagious. And unfortunately, often it's acceptable. And it shouldn't be. The second reason I think that we need to deal with, with this is because it's like weeding a garden. Have you ever worked in a garden and pulled weeds? Anybody ever pulled weeds? And you ever had that thought when you were done, I'm so glad I have pulled all of these weeds, I don't ever have to do that again. <laughs> right? No. Because the, these weeds, I, I, I got the root though, right? Like I pulled them up by the root, they'll never grow back, Right? No, they, they grow back and they grow back and they grow back. They just keep coming back. And the weeds of sin just keep coming back up through the soil of our lives. And in the church, one of the most powerful seams that just seems to come back again and again and again and strangle the church is this critical, grumbling, negative spirit that develops in churches. And so we're going to address that because it's like weeding a garden. The last reason I think that we, we ought to talk about this is because God takes grumbling very seriously. And this is probably the most important reason. God takes this stuff seriously. The Bible talks about it a fair amount in Scripture. Um, in the history of God's people, the Israelite people, this was one of the most profound and returning sins that they had over and over and over again. If you have a Bible, go ahead and flip over to Exodus chapter 15. Um, we're going to look at Exodus 15 and, and a, a couple of passages in 16 and 17 as well. And we'll have it on the screen for you as well. And then we're going to flip over to 1 Corinthians 10. But if you go back to Exodus 15 and, and just... The, to set the stage for you, what you're going to find is, remember, the, the Israelites have been in Egypt. And they've been there for a very long time, 400 years, in fact. Um, 400 years, they, they were there, they, and at first it, really, it worked out really nicely. They, they moved down there to find relief from, from a famine. Joseph brought his family down there, and Joseph was a good man, and, and the Pharaoh had, was very fond of him. And so the Pharaoh put him in high positions of power, and, and everything was going really well. And then that Pharaoh died, and Joseph died. But the Israelite people, his family, they multiplied, and they multiplied, and they grew, and they grew, and they grew, until eventually they outnumbered the, the people of Egypt. And so the Egyptian leaders, they, they recognized this, and they saw that there's a whole group of people here that are in our homeland, and they outnumber us now, so we got to do something about this. And the Pharaoh that was in charge at that time, he did not remember Joseph. He didn't know who Joseph was. He didn't know the history of the Israelites and how they came to be a part of the Egyptian culture. And so he said, you know what? It's a good idea. We've got to do something about this. So let's, let's oppress them. 
and let's turn them into slaves. And actually, so it turns out all of God's people were, were forced into labor. They were slaves of the Egyptian people. But then God does what God always does. He steps in and He sets the, the Israelite people free through miracles. He calls them out of Egypt. He, he takes them through the desert to the Red Sea. And He parts the Red Sea so that they can walk through on dry land. God, God had a pillar of fire that went ahead of them at night and, and a pillar of smoke that went ahead of them in the daytime. God was with them and doing miracles. And finally, after 400 years of being in Egypt, these Israelite people, they're finally free. And when you pick it up in Exodus 15, three days after this, they've been free for three days. 400 years have gone by and they've been set free for three days. And I want you to see their attitude and their spirit. This is what it says in Exodus 15, starting at verse 22. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. And when they came to Mar, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. And so the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? The people were grumbling against Moses, saying, Hey, we're thirsty. There's nothing here for us to drink. What are we supposed to do? And so they just start to, to whine a little bit. They're just starting this complaining and grumbling. They, they start to whine. There's, there's been miracles. They have witnessed miracles. They have witnessed God part seas. There's been a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke that have, that have been in front of them for all of this time. And they're complaining. And they're grumbling with all of God's blessings around them. Everything that they've witnessed in, in just three days, they have forgotten about. They've forgotten about all of the stuff that they had witnessed. They, they remember, they had, before this, they had seen the plagues. They had seen the ten plagues of Egypt. They, they were witness to that, and they were protected from all of that. And three days out in the, in the wilderness, in the desert, and they have forgotten about all of that. It continues over in a few verses into chapter 16, verse 3. Israel says this, it says, The desert is so bad. We wish we would have died in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food that we wanted. Man, it was so great back in Egypt. You know, back where they were killing our kids. Back where they were forcing us into, into slavery. They were forcing us into labor. Not only did they beat us half to death while, while we were working, but then they didn't give us the resources to, to do the jobs that they wanted us to do. But man, we had meat. We had pots of meat. It was great. Life was great there. Right? It says, but... They go on to say, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. They're complaining. They don't even remember their history and what they're coming from. And this isn't like, you know, multi-generational history. This is recent history. They, they don't even remember what has just happened. And they're complaining. And so God does, He hears their complaining, their whining, and He does something amazing for them. He, he, he lets sort of a heavenly cereal fall from the sky and he gives them this food called manna. And every night it falls down. And, and for six nights they're allowed to go and collect enough manna to eat. And then on the, seven, on the sixth night they go and collect enough for the next day as well so, because there was not going to be any that would come down on the seventh. And, and so they could gather twice as much and, they had, and so they would have food to eat. And here's what we read about manna in verse 31. It says, The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed, and it tasted like wafers made with honey. So that doesn't sound terrible, right? Like, not bad. Like anything, you put enough honey on anything is pretty good, right? And so, so they've got this heavenly cereal. God is giving them this heavenly cereal, this food, for every single day. And it actually tastes pretty good. 
It's a free meal every day, and it tastes good. So you would think, now they've got to be thankful, right? What else could they have to complain about? All of their needs are being met. How could you not be thankful? Of course, this grumbling, this whining, this complaining, that's going to stop all right now, right? The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was, but there was no water for the people to drink. And so they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to, your te- to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are ready to stone me. These people were ready to, to kill Moses and, and eventually Aaron. Moses' brother, and, and God is doing miracles. God is raining cereal down for them every day, and, and it tastes good. It's, it's good enough to sustain them. And so you know what happens later in chapter 17, right? They, they, they're complaining that they don't have any water. And so God you, makes water come out of a giant rock. Anybody ever seen water come out of a giant rock? I've never seen that. But all of a sudden, this rock starts spewing out fresh water. And so they got bread from heaven. They got water from this rock. And, and God's providing meat for them. They've got birds that are just like falling uh, on the ground. And they're able to go and collect them and eat. So they've got everything that they need. Surely they'll be happy now, right? They'll look at all the good things and say, God, we're so thankful. We could never complain or grumble or or whine against you again because you have been so good. Right? No. It just cycles again and again and again. As a matter of fact, every morning God lets this manna fall and they they eat the manna. And you know what they start complaining about then? We don't have enough variety. We walk into a grocery store and you go down the cereal aisle and there's hundreds of, of different types of cereals, Right? But they could start complaining that there's not enough variety. I mean, can you imagine these people? God is providing all that they need, and they're complaining that there's just not enough variety. It's unthinkable. I mean, it would be like somebody standing in front of a refrigerator, and parents, maybe even wives, you, you probably appreciate this analogy more than anybody else. You understand this. It'd be like your kids or your husband going to the refrigerator, opening it up and looking at a refrigerator full of food, and then what do they say? Well, there's nothing to eat in here. And could you imagine that? Yeah, of course you can, because that's the reality for, for a lot of us. God had provided everything that they needed. Everything that they could possibly need, God had met in abundance. And what was their attitude? Whining and complaining and grumbling. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 10, 1600 years have passed. And God is speaking through the Apostle Paul to this church in the city of Corinth. And Paul is giving them a little history lesson. He's reminding them about this very time when when they were in the desert for those 40 years and and how God is pointing out their sins, the recurring perpetual sins that for over 40 years kept them wandering around in the desert. Because, you know, think about the Israelites weren't real good with directions. It was about a seven-day walk from where where they were at to where they were trying to get to. And it took them 40 years. And it didn't take 40 years because they took a wrong turn. It took 40 years because of the perpetual sin that just kept coming up again and again. 
And so in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul points out these, and I want you to notice the four, four sins that God says to, to the people through the Apostle Paul that kept them out of, the, out of the promised land for so long. He says this in chapter 10, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to indulge in pagan revelry. God's saying, in the wilderness, while you were wandering around, you got into some idolatries. That's sin. Stay away from that. In verse 8, uh, we read, We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. God says, I take that seriously. So seriously that 23,000 people died in one day because of their immorality. Verse 9 says, We should not test the Lord, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And then you get to the fourth one. Verse 10, it says, And do not grumble as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. And then we read in verse 11, it says, These things happened to them as examples, and are written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of ages has come. 1,600 years later, God's speaking through the Apostle Paul, and he says, look back at all of those years. You have an opportunity to look back at all of those years and learn from their bad mistakes, from their bad example. Don't be like that. It, Actually, of all of those sins that are listed, I think the fourth one is, is the climax of the whole thing. The, the, that, I think, is the worst of Israel's sins because the, the grumbling, it just happened time and time and time again. It never stopped, seemingly. It, it was like a national pastime for them. And, and it broke God's heart. Because God is saying, look, you have so much to be thankful for. I have met every possible need that you have. All you, all you have to do is be thankful. And yet, all you do is complain about what you don't have and what you want. And you don't ever seem to be thankful for what you actually do have. Now I want you to look at what's happening here in this passage. In these passages. The, the couple passages from Exodus and then in the 1 Corinthians passage. Because here's what's happening. The, the presence, the glory, the goodness of God was right in front of them. They, they had seen the Red Sea part. They had seen miracles. The bread coming from heaven. Water coming from rocks. Birds laying on the ground for them. And their response was grumbling and complaining. When they should have been thankful. They were overcome with this complaining and whining spirit. And so here's my question for us this morning that we need to, to answer honestly. Is grumbling, complaining, whining, is that a, always a sin? Is it sinful to do that? And here's my answer. Yes. Always yes. And here's what I mean by grumbling and complaining and whining is this. Is that when the goodness of God is right in front of you, when God is blessing you, when He's present, when He's caring for you, and all you can do is focus on, on the things that you don't have or, or the things that you want, and you can't stop to thank God for what you do have, that's a grumbling spirit. That's a complaining and a whining spirit. That, that kind of spirit is a spirit that destroys a local church. It poisons a home. It crushes a marriage. It makes a workplace unbearable. Because there are so many things that, that we could be thankful for. And, and we get fixated on, on what we don't have and what we want. And so we just complain and we grumble. We have great blessings all around us, right in front of us. And we pick out the one thing that we don't like. And we just pick it to pieces. And look, it happens in churches, it happens in homes, it happens in lots of places. And look, when I preach a sermon like this, invariably someone... A couple, two, three people will come up to me at some point and they will say something like, I know what your message was really about. And I'm always intrigued when that happens because I'm like, oh, really? Tell, tell me. Because I'll, I'll be 100% honest with you. I don't think I've ever preached a message where there was some sort of hidden meaning, hidden message, hidden agenda behind it. I don't think I have, at least not intentionally. And if I have and you know I have, come talk to me about it because I'd like to know. 
I usually mean what I say and say what I mean. And so somebody will come to me and they will say, I know what your message was really about. You just don't want people giving input. You're, you're trying to shut down a conversation. You're trying to keep people from, from, from giving you in, input because you don't want their perspective. And I'll just tell you, that's really not true. That, that's not true at all. Here, here's the question. Is it appropriate to express real concerns in our, in our relationships and in our homes and in our churches and other places? Is it appropriate to express concerns the, um, the right way? The answer is yes. Always yes. In fact, I would invite that. We, as, as a church, want that. We're, we're not a church where I make all the decisions as a lead pastor. In fact, if you ask a couple of people around, they'll tell you that I make very few decisions. Uh, that there, there, there's, a, there's a board of elders who I'm accountable to, who, who make decisions, who have influence. There's a, there's a board of deacons who, who are a part of this church, who loves Jesus, who love this church, who love this community, and they give wise input on all kinds of stuff. We're, we're, we want to be a church culture that, that in, loves input and loves your perspectives. And, and people bringing concerns, honestly, is a good thing. But based on the biblical passages that we've been looking at this morning, I hope that you can see that we don't want grumbling and complaining and a negative spirit. Because they're two different things, right? Complaining and grumbling and a negative spirit and, and raising a concern, they're, they're two different things. So again, based on the, the, the passages that we've looked at, grumbling and complaining and that sort of stuff, that's always a sin. But bringing a valid concern the right way is a gift. So, so how do we stay away from that sin then, right? How, that, that becomes the question. How do we stay away from that sin and how do we do what is right and what is good? How do we raise concerns the right way? How do we do that? How do we live out the Bible's teaching on grumbling in a practical way? How do we express our real concerns without being negative like the children of Israel. If you say, you know, look, I have a concern about something or something that's happening in the church that I'm concerned about. How do I bring that up? How do I have input with that? How do I share that? Well, let's talk about that. Because I think there's four things that we need to remember when it comes to this. When it comes to raising valid concerns, when it comes to bringing up those concerns, I think there's four things that we need to remember. And the first one is this, is that you do it at the right time. There's a right way to bring up concerns, and, and this is part of it, is the right time. You pray, Lord, what is the right time? And I can answer that for you right away. It's not Sunday morning, okay? It's not. Uh, Sunday morning is not the time to come up and, and tell one of the musicians, you didn't like the song that they played. It's just not. Sunday morning is not the, the right before church is about to start. It's not the time to come up and, and tell me about something that I did that you don't like, because guess what? My focus is not on that. It's just not. I can, we had, uh, at one of the churches that I served where I was preaching on a consistent basis, we had a, a wife of one of our deacons who loved to use Sunday morning as the moment where she would, she would come up to me and the worship minister and, and tell us all the things that she didn't like about everything that we were doing right then. And I'm like, we're getting ready to start worship. And, and the mindset has completely changed now. Because now I'm not in the mood to worship. Now I'm mad. I'm angry. And I might preach something a little different than what I've got in my notes. It might be pointed, pointedly directed, right? Because you, you've shifted my focus. Our, our focus on Sunday mornings is about worshiping together as the body of Christ, not whatever it is that we don't like. And so look, it's a, there is a time to, to bring those things up. If you want to bring a concern, then bring it up. But let me also caution you with this. If it's about your personal taste your personal preference, 
I don't know that I'm going to be able to help you a whole lot. Here's why we exist. We exist to lead people to love and follow Jesus, right? We want to help as many people as, as possible become totally committed followers to Jesus Christ. The church does not exist. The church anywhere does not exist to scratch, to scratch your itch wherever it happens to be that week. It just doesn't. If you, if, if you complain because it doesn't go your way, then I want to gently and humbly say this. Grow up. We, we should be stretched. We should try things that stretch us because God wants to reach out to a world that is hurt, hurting and broken, and that will stretch us. So here's the thing. If you come at the right time, you, you, you come at the right time, but if it's a personal whim, your personal style, personal taste, I would say don't bring those things because the church is not ever going to cater to you exactly the way that you want. And here's the other thing about that. For every personal preference that you think the church is getting wrong, there's somebody else in the church that has the personal preference that's exactly the opposite of that. I had an elder at, a, at another church one time tell, tell um, our, our music minister that they had to sing three songs only, and it had to be from the hymn book of those th- that we used, and they could, that's the only thing they could pick from. And this was one elder telling us this. And, and they said, you can only use these songs. And then, the very next day, we had another elder who had heard about that conversation, and so just to prove a point, he came and he said, look, you can only pick these songs from, from the, the top 25 of, of K-Love's radio list. So now you've got competing, competing preferences here, right? So which one's right? Neither of them. Neither of them are right because the church doesn't exist to scratch our itches and, and make our preferences known. That's not what church is about. It's about glorifying God and bringing people to love and follow Jesus. And if we, if we meet a personal preference that week, great. And if we don't, it'll be alright because we'll probably meet it in the next week or the week after. At some point, you're going to be satisfied. But listen to me. If it's all about personal preferences, you'll never be satisfied. You'll never be satisfied, okay? You, you just won't. So there's a right time to bring these up. But we need to get beyond our personal preferences. The second thing to consider is to bring it with the right spirit. Here's the right spirit. Gentle and humble. If you're married and you're talking to your spouse, or if you're dealing with family or a workplace issue, and you're bringing a valid concern, not a a personal taste thing, not a personal preference, but you're dealing with a valid concern and you come with the right heart, and you come with gentle humility, the, the odds of someone being receptive to that are much better. If you come just to, to blow somebody out of the water and win an argument, then, then you miss the point. Because the, the, the point of, of having these conversations is never to win an argument. It, it's to, to restore and, and meet somewhere in the middle to, to get an understanding of perspective. And that only happens when it's done with a humble and gentle spirit. So you go at the right time with the right spirit, and then you go to the right person. The right person is the, is the person to whom it only relates to. So if you don't like something that I've said in a sermon, and you go out for lunch after the service, and you start talking to you know, 10, 15 other people, and you tell them all the things that you don't like about, I'm going to tell you that's wrong, because they can't fix that. They can't do anything about it. If you don't like something that I've said, come talk to me about it. Because I'm the only one that can do anything about it. I, I will stand accountable for everything that I have said. And so if there's an issue, you talk to the person who, who's the right person. Um, a couple of weeks ago, actually it's been longer than that, a couple of months ago, there was a, um, a person who had a concern about the organization of, of an event we had. 
And so um, I appreciated how this person handled these things because they, they had some concerns about it. They waited till the event was over. They, they sent me a, a, a text message and said, hey, can we set up a time to debrief and go over this and, and, and kind of evaluate? And then they came to me about it. They didn't go to 15 other people and tell them all the things that they were going to tell me about all the stuff that they didn't like. And you know what happened? We had a conversation. And the, and the point was not to, to see how bad we had done things or that we had messed things up. The point was to see, did we miss some opportunities where we could do better? And we both came away from that conversation going, you know what? We did. We missed some opportunities. We could do better here. But it wasn't, but it, the person didn't come with a, with a uh, I'm going to win an argument attitude. They came at the right time with the right spirit and they went to the right person. And the last thing, the fourth thing, is that you go with the right response. And here's the response. You share what's on your heart. You share what's on your heart. You pray that God will do something good through it and you trust the Lord and then you move on. You, you share what's on your heart. You pray that God will do something good through that. You, and, and then you move on. You don't lock down and decide that I can't let it go and I'm going to keep complaining. And look, I'm telling you, there are people in churches and in, all over the world, not just in churches, but in workplaces and in homes, all over the world that are, that are upset week after week, year after year over the same thing. They've never been able to move on. They, 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 all they do is just, they, can, they constantly complain about it. They never move on from it. Look, if, if we trust that God is big enough to, to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, do we not trust that God is big enough that if, if we pray about the concern that we have, and we talk to the right person about it with the right attitude, with the right spirit, that God will, that God will press upon their hearts the need to do something about it? I mean... Doesn't that make sense? If, if, I'm, if I trust that God is big enough to do all of those things, would I not just trust that God is big enough to, to move in, in somebody else's heart? Or that God would convict me that maybe I was wrong to begin with? I mean, but, but instead what we do is we, we lock down. We, we hold our position that, that you know, it, it didn't, nothing changed in, in my time frame. You know, I didn't, I didn't get my way. I didn't get what I wanted. It didn't happen the way I wanted it, when I wanted it. And so I'm just going to lock down and I'm going to hold this grudge. I'm gonna, and I'm just going to have this negative attitude and spirit about me. I'm telling you, that, that attitude is contagious. And it's deadly. It's poisonous. It's like drinking rat poison, hoping that the rat will die. That's what it's like. Look, if you share it and you pray about it and you trust the Lord, then move on. That, that brings health in homes and in churches and in workplaces and in every setting. And, and here's the, the, the antidote to all of this, I think. To, the antidote to uh, uh, an attitude of grumbling and complaining, that negative spirit, the antidote to that is an attitude of thanksgiving, an attitude of thankfulness. Notice God's goodness and see what He's doing and celebrate that. The, the people of Israel, they had all of these miracles and, and they were complaining about all of this other stuff. They, they were literally witnessing miracles from God right in front of them and, and they were too blind to see that because of, of this negative spirit that they had about themselves. We don't like the flavor of food. People will nitpick and complain. That's grumbling. That, that's sin. That's wrong. And it needs to stop. Thankfulness is the love language of God. Thankfulness is the love language of God. And if thankfulness is the love language of God, then, then let's go back to the opposite game for a minute. 
If thankfulness is the love language of God, then who do you think the love language is belongs to of, of complaining and grumbling and that negative spirit? Yeah, Satan. It is his love language. I, I think complaining is the thing that Satan loves the most because it's the thing that gives him the easiest foothold. It allows him to, to get his foothold in the, the easiest places where he can just burn things to the ground and destroy things. I read a book a, a number of years ago called Well-Intentioned Dragons. And the premise of the book was about people who, who had good intentions, but were like dragons. What do dragons do? They burn things down, right? They breathe fire and they burn things down. It didn't matter if they're good intention or bad intention, right? That's what dragons do. And, and the author of this book said that complaining is the same way. Complaining and grumbling and that having that negative spirit is the same thing. It doesn't matter if you have good intentions or not. The result is going to be the same, that you burn things to the ground. If thanksgiving is the love language of, those who lo- uh, uh, of God, then thanksgiving is the love, should be the love language of those who love God and who are following Jesus. So let's be thankful. we got so much to be thankful for. I mean, we can look around us and say, God, you are so good to me. You have been so good to me. You continue to be so good to me in my home, in my community, in in our church. God is so good. He has blessed us so much. So let's just be thankful people. Let me pray for us.